I also think of uh, mattress sales. Do you think of that? You know, it's like, for some reason on Labor Day, it's like 75% off every mattress that's ever been made. And when you look at it, every single mattress store you ever drive by is going to have the same thing, and you know what it is. It's the dancing guy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Which is one of my favorite inventions in, in the history of the world. It's one of the greatest things ever made. I want you to imagine this. You're going to think of me now. When you see the dancing guy, imagine a real human being dancing like that and try not to laugh. It's, it's amazing. You could have like the worst day ever and you see that dancing man, you may not buy a mattress, but you want to watch that dancing man over and over and over again. So I, I, I think of that during Labor Day. Uh, I think of the, the faux pas that you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day, but in Miami we do what we want. So, but apparently, guys, apparently, that's changing. Fashion is like has no rules now. I'm learning, I'm catching up on my fashion. So you can wear white, feel free to. Uh, Labor Day is also a day that we think of rest, and I think the main reason we think of rest is because we don't have work, most of us. Some of us do. It's a day to be free from your labor. Uh, I I didn't know this, but Labor Day is a day where we celebrate the achievements uh, in our country of our strength and our prosperity, and so we rest from working to kind of like pat ourselves on the back and say how great we are. That's what Labor Day is. So tonight, uh, Peter is transitioning, and he's, he's ending his letter. We've been going through this entire book, First and Second Peter, throughout the summer, and we're ending the series here tonight. And he's going to end the series where he began it, in the very first chapter of First Peter, where he talks about eternity. He talks about eternal rest. And in First Peter 1, he says, You are going to be born again to a living hope, and you're to set your mind on it. You're to remember that you have a promised inheritance that is unfading and undefiable, and imperishable, waiting in heaven for you. And then tonight, he's talking about the end times, and he's talking about the thing that you hold on to, the promise and the belief that you have eternal rest in God with him forever, that death is not the end of the story. And what he's going to harp on tonight is that that view and that truth that you hold, that you are going to be with God in eternity, that you have rest and peace in God, and that is assured of you, you're going to be ridiculed for that belief. And so that's where we pick up tonight. So look at the very first uh, verse. It says this, Peter says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, one of the things we've been talking about over and over and over again, because Peter emphasizes it, is it really matters what you set your mind on. He emphasizes the mind throughout the entirety of First Peter and Second Peter. He says things like, think deeply, be sober-minded, be watchful, be mindful, set your mind on, and then he fills in a blank all over the place. Remember, he's consistently telling you, what you consume matters. How you think matters, because it affects the way that you live. And so he's saying here, I want you to remember something. I want you to hold on to something. I want you to set your mind on something because it's really important. In verse two, he says, I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Saying, I want you to remember scripture. I want you to set your mind on truth and specifically the truth that the prophets have predicted and Jesus himself spoke about and the apostles have discussed that death isn't the end of the story for those of faith, but there's a promised inheritance. And here's what he says. He says, knowing that first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And so what he's gonna tease out here is that people are gonna come and they're gonna ridicule you because of your beliefs, because you set your mind on scripture and you, you hold that as true and you're following after that. 
and especially because you believe in an afterlife or the end times, that Jesus is going to return and then you're going to be with him in eternity. You're going to get made fun of and laughed at for that. That in the last times, in the last days, scoffers will come, which means Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and then ascension ushered in the last days. Because the only thing left is Jesus' return, the day of judgment, and then eternity begins for us. And so you're going to meet people, and maybe you have, that will treat you like you're going to see in this video, and this is how they view you. Maybe they discuss, they say this to your face. Check this out. Uh, at a dinner party, you should never talk about sex, politics, or religion. Have you ever been invited to a dinner party in your life? <laughs> is, That's is a great that, are there yeah. things you won't uh, talk about? I probably wouldn't be invited to your dinner party because we're very opposite, right? Really? How so? Well, like... How are we opposite? <laughs> really? You're married and religious. Yeah, uh, I'm married and I give, it, I give religion a shot. Yeah, I give it a shot. Oh, I thought you were a practicing Catholic. I am. doesn't mean I'm good at it. I'm not. Honest to God, I suck. I suck as a Catholic. Doesn't mean I don't keep going. Well, you, you were raised Catholic, I right? I was raised Catholic. Come on back, Bill. <laughs> the door is always open. <laughs> Golden was, ticket it, right before you. Was, All you have to do is humble yourself before the presence of the Lord. Admit there are things greater than you in the universe that you do not understand, and salvation awaits you. Take Pascal's wager. If you're wrong, you're an idiot. But if I'm right, you're going to hell. I do admit there are things in the universe I don't understand. Okay. But my response to that is not to make up silly stories. <laughs> They're pretty or, good stories. Some of them or, are pretty good stories, Or Bill. to believe intellectually embarrassing myths from the Bronze Age. But you believe whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I have a connection to our ancestors because I... I sure. Yeah, sure, I have a... Because, so, yeah. you know, these were men who did not know what a germ or an atom was or where the sun went at night, and uh -huh. that's where you're getting your wisdom. Anyway, let's... <laughs> let's not... Let's well, I like not it. I like argue. It. Let's, I like uh, it. Let's I can eat a big bowl of this. This is good. <laughs> it's tasty. You see, my religion teaches me humility then, in the right, face I, of this I, kind I, of attack. I, I see that. You brought it very, up. No, you, I did you, not bring anything up. Well, you, you gave me a big lecture on come back to the church. I did not give I gave you an invitation. Steve. A lecture. It's an invitation. What are you well, talking it, about? This guy gave me a huge lecture about going to dinner. <laughs> I'll well, eat what would, I want, would, thank you. Would, I'll eat what I want. Italian. I, Italian food. <laughs> How dare you? I've had more inviting invitations, but, uh, okay. <laughs> so... And maybe you've experienced this, right? Because of your faith, because of what you believe, you're going to be called unintelligent, narrow-minded, anti-science, you're weak, and so you have to have a crutch, and that's religion for you. Or maybe you've never experienced that level of hostility, but you've been kept at a distance, right? You're the Christian in the office that's kind of like the unicorn in the office, you know? It's like, yeah, that person's a Christian, you know? They're weird. Or maybe you're treated in a condescending way, like, do you really believe, like, the stuff in that book, like Jesus rose from the dead and he's coming back and eternity in this kind of condescending way. And, and Peter is saying that that is expected. That will happen. People will come and scoff at you. They will ridicule you. They will mock you. They'll keep you at a distance. They want to separate from you because there's a, differencing, a difference of belief, right? He, he says that they're following after their own sinful desires and the idea is that you're following after different desires, desires that God has made new in you through faith, 
by pouring his grace out on you, and you're seeking to live according to God's word. And so there's a division there. There's this opposition that happens. And, and see, the core of division and the core uh, of persecution or people separating is really a core uh, of a division of belief. It's the idea that I believe in God, and you don't believe in God, so we should probably just stay apart. Or I believe that this is how life is supposed to be lived, and so I'm going to wrap myself around and associate myself with people that agree with that. And you believe that this is how life is supposed to be lived, so let's just keep our distance. Sometimes there's hostility in the interaction. Sometimes it's just, especially in our culture, that's really good for you, you know, which is very condescending. That's great. You just stay over there. Don't leave your cubicle and come over here. That will be awkward because we could get in a fight. See, a difference in belief is the thing that divides people. So people like Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins, very famous atheists among others, they have this, this disdain for anybody that believes in God, especially Christians, probably because predominantly most atheists are in the Western world and the predominant religion is Christianity. So there's this, this disdain for people that believe in something that they don't believe in. It's this instinctual verses. It's just, it feels like it's wrong to mix so there's hostility, there's ridicule, there's scoffing. But it's interesting, right? Like, if you think about Bill Maher, if you think about Richard Dawkins and many others that don't believe in God, they don't believe in heaven, they don't believe in hell, they don't believe the Bible is the word of God, they just believe that this is all there is in life, and then death happens and it's over, we're a pack of neurons that have been randomly spun out, and then so you're just supposed to live your life according to your desires. Why do they care so much about what other people believe. Because uh, the, the difference of belief is threatening, right? They're gonna say that religion is dangerous and it needs to be vanished from society because it produces evil. That's their wager. Dawkins says this a lot. Religion is corrupting and it's evil and it needs to be removed. And we have to be a little honest. Religion can produce that, right? We experience that in our day. Even in our own past in the church, we have the atrocities of the Crusades where evil and greedy and selfish men took and manipulated the, the Christian faith to, for power and for gain. And it, it's an atrocity. But their logic is flawed. Their thesis that religion is corrupting and it needs to be vanished from society because anybody that falls after religious beliefs or believes in God or some higher power is susceptible to this type of evil is, is flawed because what the issue is, is people, right? It's not religion. It's people that are evil. We understand that inherently. It's people that are evil and they take things and manipulate them for their own gain. And here's why it's flawed. Because religion has and can produce that when people take things and they manipulate and they, tra- they, they mold them to fit what is going to be good for their agenda. But atheism has done the same thing, Right? Our century, the most bloodshed has been poured out because of atheism. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao. These are people that don't believe in God. And yet, they're capable of doing horrible and evil things. And see, here's the deal. Here's what everyone is, is clamoring after. We're clamoring for dignity, for respect, for love, for justice, and so we, we find these tension points when we don't believe in the same thing as somebody else and we don't like what they believe and so, so we mark them as evil and corrupting. When the reality is every single person in the world is a person of faith. Every person in the world has faith. That's just the reality. So you may have faith 
in Jesus Christ, that he lived and died for you and he rose from the dead and you hold God's word as truth, or you may believe that there is no God and you have faith in that. See, faith is something in someone or something. So everyone has faith and everyone's belief is the thing by which they use to create atrocities and evil and horrendous acts in the world. Injustice is always enacted because of faith. It's enacted because of a belief, whether that be in God or not in God. And so Peter is, is saying here that when people encounter you because of your belief in who God is and the promise that he has laid out for what is going to become of the earth, of your life, of the life of others, it is going to come across as threatening and ridiculous. They're going to look at what we hold on to in Revelation and think that it is so silly that you believe this is actually going to happen. I want to read it for you. Here's what it says in in, in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, and he said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And Peter is saying that that belief is going to be threatening to people because they're going to look at you and they're going to say, how do you believe that that's going to happen? He says in verse four that they're going to look at you, they're going to say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Where is Jesus' return? It's been 2,000 years. You're still holding on to this book. You're believing it. As Bill Maher said, that they don't even know what a germ is or where the sun went. And you really believe this. And Jesus is going to return in the new heavens and the new earth and no more tears and pain. It, it seems ridiculous to them. And so they're going to scoff. They're going to mock. They're going to divide. They're going to distance. They're going to talk to you in a condescending way. And I think it's really important that we are understanding of where other people come from. Because it's not just that they think what you believe is ridiculous or silly, but it's because you believe something that that is inherently threatening to them. Because what you believe is that Jesus is going to return on the day of judgment. He is going to bring you through judgment to be with him in eternity in this beautiful place where there's no tears and no pain and all things are made new and it's this beautiful picture. But what they're hearing is what? I'm being sent to hell because I won't bend to God, because I won't accept, because I won't believe. And I I don't feel like I deserve that. And so your belief is, in fact, threatening to me. It may seem silly to me as well, but it is a threat because God, to them, seems like this cosmic bully that is just waiting to pour out his wrath on people. He's not loving and he's not good to them, and so they scoff and they mock and they ridicule you I want to read you a quote. It's a very famous quote from Richard Dawkins, his book, The God Delusion. I didn't put it on the screen because I want you to feel it, okay? Here's what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. 
jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. See, that's, that's one level, right? That, that's an extreme. But there's a feeling that people that ridicule and distance and scoff at you for your belief, if you're here and you believe, or maybe you're working through that and you kind of resonate with some of that. Because it seems like that. Why would God have the day of judgment and some get to go to this great place written about and others not? It's a threat. There's this instinctual verses. See, division and opposition and mockery will come because your faith and what you believe is a threat. It's this idea that you believe life is not all there is. And there's a versus there with my belief, which is I believe this is all there is. You believe there's only one God and one way to him, and I believe that there's many ways to God. And it's about finding it. You believe that the, the people that believe and have faith will go to heaven and those that don't believe go to hell. And I believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. It's divisive. There's tension there. And some of it is understandable. And you've probably experienced this, or at least you should have. See, Peter is assuming here that Christians are uh, buying the, the parable. I don't know if they had the song back then, Hide It Under a Bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Maybe they did. You know, but the idea here is, is Peter is assuming that Christians are bringing their faith into every aspect of their life. That it's not just in church, in their work, in their home, as they're selling papers or sandals or beets. I don't know what they were selling. As they're meeting friends, walking to different restaurants, their faith is a part of who they are, and people know that they're a person of faith. And so Peter is assuming that because that's true, you will experience mockery, ridicule. I don't know about the level of hostility, but it will happen because your belief is a threat. And the question is, if you've never experienced that, then probably the reality is you're afraid to bring your faith out into the world that you live because it could be uncomfortable because you know that this could be the reality. But Peter is assuming for us that this is our reality, that we're not ashamed of what we believe. So the question is, what do you do? And here's what he says in verse 8. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's saying, listen, don't be discouraged first off. When people come to you and they tell you that what you believe is ridiculous and silly, and it's been 2,000 years, and where is God? I thought he was supposed to be returning. He's saying, why would you ever think about putting God in a box? Like one day is like a thousand years of God. God's the author of time. He's not bound by it, right? We, we can't put God in the same parameters that we ourselves are in because he is the author of those per- parameters. So first off, don't be discouraged by people that come to you and say, well, where is he? Why hasn't he come back yet? But also, he says, don't be discouraged, but also remember, set your mind on this, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, here's the fundamental flaw in the skeptic and the non-believer's logic to God. It's that he's this malevolent bully. It's that he's not loving, and he's not good, and he's not concerned. Look, look what Peter says. He says that he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. He's saying that there's this reality that you are to hold on to that God is in fact good. He is patient and and those of you that believe know and you are thankful for God's patience with you. And he is compassionate and he is desiring of all people to come to repentance. And and he he picks up in this verse that the skeptic, the non-believer, overlooks something very fundamental. It's why they're unable to see the truth of who God is. And that's what you see where it says that for they deliberately overlook this fact in verse five, that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed of water and through water by the word of God. You're probably reading that like, what in the heck is Peter talking about? He's saying the skeptics overlook the fact that God is the creator. They overlook Genesis one. They overlook the very beginning of the Bible, which says in the beginning, God created the heavens, of the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless. It was void It was this chaotic mess. It was dark. And what did God do? See, see, Genesis tells us that God is the creator and author of all things, but it also, the very first chapter of the Bible, tells you who God is and God's plan of salvation, how he works. Look what it says. He takes what's formless and void and chaotic and covered with water. It's this mess. And what does it say in the rest of Genesis that he does? He orders it. He fills it with trees and plants and animals and eventually us. He brings light into the darkness. Sounds familiar, right? (laughs) You read scripture and what does it say that that God does? He brings light into our dark hearts. He takes us that are formless and he, he creates in us something beautiful and ordered when we're empty. He fills us with the reality of who he is and his truth. It's the, it, they overlook the fact of who God is, that he is a creator and how he works, but they also overlook in verse six, that by the means of the, these, by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. He says that skeptics overlook the flood, and you're like, yeah, because most skeptics and, and non-believers think the flood is ridiculous. But we're not going to talk about whether or not it was a localized or universal flood. That's another discussion. So if you want to talk about that, email it in on the questions. Questions at crossbridgemiami.com. But he's saying that they overlooked the flood and the reality of what happened there. God looked at the world that was utterly wicked. And God, who is pure and holy, cannot mix with wickedness. See, the reality is, the mentality that people have is, I am a pretty good person. Why would God not grant me all of these things that you think he's granted you because you believe and follow the Bible and believe in Jesus? And the reality is, is that God cannot mix with sin, not even one sin. It's like peanut butter and mayo. The thought of it makes you want to vomit, right? It's just like, think about that. It's horrible. And so God looks at the world and it's utterly wicked. There's only one family that believes. It's Noah's family and God comes to him and he tells him to build a boat. He's going to get in the boat and then it's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights and it's going to take out wickedness and the boat's going to float and God's going to bring Noah and his family safely through. And they don't, believe scoffers and unbelievers they look at it and they, they don't understand the reality that a pure and holy god cannot mix with wickedness they reject that he's the creator they reject how he works and takes formless and void things and fills it and orders it and they reject that god can't tolerate wickedness and then he says here's the promise for you in verse seven but by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are st- stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly this to me this is really cool God is saying through Peter as he writes this that the process will repeat. What happened 
in the time of the flood is going to repeat, but it's going to look different. Notice he says that, by, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The difference is God poured out water on the earth to cleanse it. Water is a cleansing agent to cleanse it of wickedness. And in the future, when Jesus returns, the promise that you're holding on to that people think is ridiculous, is going to be fire that is going to come and it's going to purify Again, the same thing that cannot mix with God, which is wickedness and injustice and evil. But the reality is that we are brought through the waters, or in our case, brought through the fire in the same way that Noah was. And that's through Jehovah. It's through Jesus Christ. And you may be thinking, Carter, you got your stories mixed up here because if you remember the flood story, Noah builds a boat, he gets in the boat with the animals, must have smelled really bad, and then he got in and then the water came and he, the boat is the thing that brought Noah and his family safely through the water. Yes, but one of the things that you have to ask yourself when you read is who shut the door of the boat? Think about that. He built this huge boat, right? And he has a huge door in the side and it, all of that would have been for naught if the door was not perfectly sealed because as the water came, it's going to rise up and it's going to come in the boat and they're not going to make it. Genesis seven sixteen says, and the Lord shut him in. That Noah builds this boat faithfully because God calls him to. And as he gets in, who shuts the door behind him? The thing that actually is keeping them safe, the thing that's going to enable them to pass through the waters of judgment, it's the door. Who shuts it? It's Jehovah. It's God himself who shuts the door. See, in the flood story, God cleansed the earth and he, puts, he tells Noah to build this boat and go inside and he seals him in and he carries him through the waters to remove wickedness because God can't mix. But here's the difference between the pattern that is going to happen in the future is God didn't deal with wickedness in the flood story once and for all. He didn't wipe out sin and death and tears and injustice as is promised in our future. Because we know that when the boat landed, what did Noah do? He showed that he was a sinful human being and he goes and gets drunk and naked. Because it's not about the fact that Noah was this perfect person. That's why he got to go on the boat is because he believed. Because he trusted in who God is. And so the pattern will repeat. It will have similarities, but will have beautiful differences. This time, God will not only deal with wickedness, but he will deal with it in a final way. All injustice, all tears, all pain, even death will be done, will be done with. We wiped away. God will make all things new. God will bring all those that are shut in behind Jesus Christ through the fire, just like he brought Noah through. John 10 says that, that Jesus says of himself, I am the door. So the reality is that Jesus himself even says that he's the door, and all of those what shut in behind the door pass through the waters of judgment, pass through the fire that is coming to purify sin. It's not because we're good. It's not because we earned it. Noah certainly didn't earn it or deserve it. He was just faithful to what God told him to do and how to live, and he believed, and so he was shut in behind the door, and it's the same reality for us. We are shut in behind Christ because of faith, because grace has been poured out to us. And ultimately, this purifying fire and this pure, like the purifying water will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And we read about it in Revelation that it's gonna be this beautiful, beautiful place. But the reality is there's no charts, there's no graphs. If somebody says to you, hey, you know what? Jesus is coming back August 2nd, 2018. You could say, 
definitely not coming back that day because he's coming like a thief in the night. It's what it says in verse 10, but the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. So the question is, if this is the reality, if this is the truth, how do you live now in light of that? Scoffers will come, you'll be ridiculed, kept in a distance. They think that what you believe is ridiculous and silly, but you know that you've been shut in behind Christ. You've been promised that you're going to be carried through to the new heavens and the new earth. Peter always gives us something. He says in verse 11, since all these things are thus, since these things are true, to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening and the coming of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you read this and you may immediately think, okay, well, that means that God's just gonna do away with everything here. So what's the point of trying to make a difference. I mean, all we should do, I guess, then is evangelism because everything else is worthless because it's going to be dissolved. It's going to be burned away. It's going to be done with. So why make any effort? Well, it's not true. The comparison that Peter gives here is to the flood, right? God floods the, the world with water. Does God flood the world with water and then say, Psh, new earth, here we go. Or in the creation, when the world was formless and void and chaotic, does he say, ah, that's not really attractive. Let me throw that away. Let's try a new earth. Every time God takes formless, void, chaotic, evil, messed up things, and he redeems them. He does it in Genesis 1. He does it in the flood story. He does it in us. When he comes to us and makes us new, he says that we're born again and we're made new. He doesn't say, Carter, don't like your old body. Boom, here's a new body, right? He renews us. He makes us new. And the same reality is coming that this earth is where we will be in eternity because God makes things new. He doesn't throw them away. He redeems them. And so working for the Lord and following after his word is not in vain. The reality is that when you read Revelation, where we're gonna be in eternity is a city. It's a place of beautiful art. It's a place of a river of life running through it because death is no more. It's also a place where now there's two trees. It's even more beautiful than the garden. It's this beautiful city that we will be inhabiting and living in with each other. And it's here because God is going to bring purifying fire and wipe out all the things that plague even the skeptic. Death and injustice and pain and tears. And he's going to bring us into his planned and, and perfectly designed inheritance waiting for us. The front of your uh, program, worship program, says this from N.T. Wright, a scholar, theologian. Jesus, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven, but to colonize the earth with the life of heaven. That is, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. The Lord's Prayer says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On where? Earth, as it is in heaven. See, God is doing it here. This is where the new heavens and the new earth will be, and this is where we're called to invest. And so, like Noah, that with the reality and the knowledge that we have been shut in behind Jesus, knowing that ridicule and mockery will come, but trusting and remembering and setting our mind on the reality of who God is, how do we live? We live lives of holiness and godliness, which is to say, 
like Noah, we're boat builders. We're not trying to earn our salvation. We know that we can't. We've been shut in behind Christ. But like Noah, we've been given purpose. We've been called to live in this life as we can. So people are going to come to you and they're going to say, why would you refrain from this? Why would you go to church every Sunday? Why would you take a week out of your schedule and go to community group? Why would you read your Bible? You actually believe in that? Why would you pray? Do you really think God is listening? Why would you bring ethics into business? Why would you sacrifice your money? Why would you do something for somebody else if it's not going to benefit you? Why would you seek to make great art if it's not going to make you famous and rich? See, we're boat builders. God has given each one of us purpose. He's called us to live faithfully with the reality that it's not about earning where we're going, but it's holding on to the truth that we've been shut in behind Christ and we will be with him. And, and one of the things I want to say in closing is that I think it's really important for us to remember that when people come and ridicule or mock or treat you like a unicorn, that godliness means that we're to be like Jesus, which means we're not to respond with mocking back. We're not to respond with distancing ourselves from them. We're not to respond with ridiculing them because we're ridiculed. What did Jesus do when he was laughed at and scoffed at? He endured it. He loved despite that. And then he even invited them to trust and believe in him. And it's the same response for us. We're to endure mockery, persecution, and division. We're to love people, even those people that are our friends or neighbors or coworkers that are really hard to love because they look at us like we're an alien. And we're to invite them to come to trust in the the truth and the reality of who Jesus is, even if that means that we're going to be made fun of for it. That's our calling. It's to godliness. It's to be like Jesus. It's to have this heart. Here's what Revelation closes near the end of it with this. Jesus says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, that's the reality. That's our heart. Should be our heart for all people, whether they ridicule us or not, whether they think that what we believe is silly or not, is that we are people that are inviting because we have been invited to take and to taste from the water of life without cost, and so we should invite others to the same. That's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for all of us as a family, that we would be known as people that are enduring, are loving, and are inviting people to taste of the one that orders and fills and makes beautiful something chaotic like us. Let's pray.